If you're, um, if you're new with us this morning, we welcome you. We're glad that you're here. Just to catch you up, we are in the book of 1 Peter. We, we just kind of uh, make our way through a book of the Bible, and when we're finished, then we pick up at another book. And so we started in 1 Peter uh, just a short time ago. And this morning, uh, we are in verses 17 through 21. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn there. If you don't, there's probably a blue Bible located underneath the seats around you. You can grab one of those. They're there for you if you need it, and you can turn to page 1014, and that'll bring you uh, to our text for this morning. So, I have a question, just a question to begin our time before we uh, get into the text. It's really not a question for you to necessarily answer right now or answer out loud, that is, but uh, a question for reflection. And the question is this, should the child of God, should the child of God fear God? Should the child of God fear God? Or to put it another way, should fear have any place in the Christian's relationship with their Heavenly Father? Should fear have any place in the Christian's relationship with their Heavenly Father? And I think, uh, I think the, the world generally is confused about this. I think even some Christians are confused about how to maybe answer that question or how they understand those things. So I think it'll be helpful to work through this passage this morning. But as we think about that, we can also think about Romans chapter 3, which we've made our way through prior Uh, In describing fallen humanity or unredeemed sinful humanity, in describing them, the Apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter 3, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Who's he describing? Christians? No, he is describing fallen humanity, unredeemed humanity. Humanity. It's actually taken from Psalm 36.1, that quote. It says the exact same thing there. And there, you, it's very clear, he's, he's describing the, uh, the psalmist is describing the ungodly, the wicked. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And since that is the case, that is the ungodly that that characterizes, then the opposite should be true of believers, don't you think? Huh? Should they not be a people who fear God? They should be. I think the confusion sets in because um, maybe too much emphasis on one particular divine character of God. So people talk about the love of God. He is a loving God indeed. Grateful for that love. But does that love, our love of him, his love of us, as his children, does that love somehow preclude the Christian from fearing him? Is it not possible for a, for a human father, just thinking about this on, a, on an earthly level, for a human father to truly love his child and for that child to love his father and yet at the same time for that child to have a certain fear of his father? Is that not possible? And I'm not talking about a weird kind of fear or an, 
or an unhealthy fear. But for instance, fear of his discipline. Is that not possible? I say that's important, actually. Uh, it's a funny thing. I uh, watching my grandkids grow up, and my son-in-law. I'm just going to call him out right now. Um, but he he does this thing with them, where if if one of them is uh, acting inappropriately, not according to house rules, he says, "Uh oh." Right? Now, I, okay, that's what he does. He goes, uh-oh, and to watch the reaction of his children is so fun <laughs> because the second they hear that tone, they stop, and they're, they're very small, and they look at each other like, who's doing something wrong? Like, they're like, am I doing something wrong? Are you doing something wrong? Something bad is about to happen to us. Because uh, I know what that means, right? But They love their dad, and their dad loves them. And yet, (laughs) there is a certain level of fear when the hand of dad comes and lands on their shoulder and squeezes it really hard. (laughs) Um, So just consider those things, and then let's look at the text. We need to look at the context, not just the passage, but where it falls within this section of God's Word. And to pick that up, we'll We'll start in verses, actually verse 14. We covered verses 14 through 16 last week, but um, holiness is still the theme here. Holiness is still the theme. So, let's read it. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. In all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Verse 17. This is where we're picking up this week. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. All right, so verse 17, you'll notice, at least in the English Standard Version, the translation of the Bible that we use here, it begins with the word end, end, and and that is there in the original text. Some translations leave that out, and you could maybe walk away thinking that Peter here is beginning a a whole new idea, but he's not. Uh, The word end there is important. It's connecting it back with what was just said. So here, the context helps us see that there is a connection between us fearing our Heavenly Father and us being holy, us being holy. Or, as I told you last week, that means living morally upright lives or lives separated from sin and devoted to God. Lives separated from sin and devoted to God. 
And so in light of uh, this passage and, and the connection here in the context, I, I titled this uh, sermon, Fearing Our Father, the Safeguard of Holiness. The Safeguard of Holiness. Fearing Our Heavenly Father, the Safeguard of Holiness. Uh, safeguard, uh, maybe you know this, it's, it's just a measure taken to, uh, to protect something or, pre- or prevent something undesirable, okay? And so uh, in this case, a proper fear of God can work to protect our commitment to holiness by preventing us from engaging in sin or repenting quickly of it when we do, Okay? the safeguard of holiness. So here, after Peter's exhortation to holiness in verses 14 through 16, he then draws the Christian reader's attention to the fact that the one whom they regularly call on, and the word is invoke, the idea is pray to and appeal to, and the one that they know intimately as father is also judged. Or one who judges impartially according to each one's deeds or work or work. Uh, some commentators understand this act of God's judgment that Peter is referring to here to be speaking of a future judgment, a future judgment of believers. That is what we uh, commonly refer to as the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, That is where rewards for believers will be determined. Not their salvation, because that has already been settled for those who have placed their faith in Christ. It's not that type of judgment. But it's a judgment of what they did with their salvation while here on earth and and what rewards they will receive or loss of reward they might incur because of the way they live their lives. So some see this as a future judgment. It certainly uh, can include that, but I, I think... It is best to see this based on the context as a primarily or even maybe solely speaking of the judging action of God that he does now in the present to develop holiness in believers or in his children. It's the judging action of God that goes on right now in the lives of God's children, okay? So what does it mean that he judges, and we'll talk more about this judgment, but what does it mean that he judges, notice he says, impartially, okay? Look at the text. He he says, and if you call on him as father who judges, he could have just said that according to, he could have gone on, but he adds the word impartially. So you got to start to feel and hear the tone of what Peter's trying to communicate. But impartially means that God doesn't play favorites in this judgment, or show favoritism to anyone. He does not give preferential treatment in this judgment, okay? He does not give preferential treatment in this judgment. Human judges often uh, have biases, show favoritism, give preferential treatment, not the divine judge, and certainly not in this specific area. So, I believe what Peter is getting at here in the context of God's command to be holy, remember this is all said in light of that, be holy for I am holy, is that God does not 
look the other way when it comes to his kids sinning or failing to be holy or morally upright. He does not look the other way. He is an impartial judge. Our Heavenly Father doesn't give us a pass on how we, how we live our lives just because we are His beloved, and we are. But that doesn't mean we get a free ride when it comes to our conduct. We are His chosen and redeemed children, but God impartially judges us. Or, and the word, it means scrutinizes and evaluates. So He He closely scrutinizes and evaluates each one's deeds or work without bias, impartially. No favoritism here. Therefore, notice he says each one's, therefore none are exempt from this regular examination by God. None. And by the way, you know this, but let me remind you, God not only examines the outside, but more importantly, He examines the inside. He judges the inside. He scrutinizes the inside, the heart, right? Both, inside and out. So, when God sees and determines that we are failing to live as He desires us to live, according to His standards, as He has set forth in His Word whether that be externally or even within our heart, within our minds, as his children then, we should not expect to get a pass. Like, well, doesn't he love us? Yes. Yes. But we should expect rather to receive the corrective discipline of our heavenly Father. And beloved, this discipline can be severe. Up to and including death. I, uh, in a company I used to work for before I went full time in the ministry, we I would one of my responsibilities was writing people up for various things, infractions or disobeying company policy. And I always we always had to put this one line in at the end: future violations will result in disciplinary actions up to and including termination. Right? Maybe you've seen that. Um, but the idea is the disciplinary actions can, they can be, there can be several ways we discipline you, but it can even be as severe as your termination. And that is the case for God's discipline of his children as well. And the whole point of that, the reason you write it in is not only to cover yourselves legally, but to strike a little fear. In fact, we used to have this phrase, do you remember? That child needs the fear of God put in them. Do you remember that? I say it often, just going around public places. We used to understand that. We didn't have a problem with it. But somewhere, somewhere along the lines, the fear of God and the love of God somehow became incompatible. That's not biblical. That's not biblical. One writer commenting on this section of God's word, he says this. He says, I, I suppose in Peter's days, as in our days, There were people that fell so in love with one aspect of the divine nature that they had no eyes for any other. 
and who so magnified the thought of the Father that they forgot the thought of the judge. That error has been committed over and over again in all ages, so that the church as a whole, one may say, has gone swaying from one extreme to the other and has rent these two conceptions widely apart and sometimes has been foolish enough to pit them against each other. Okay? You can see that in church, in the life of the church, in the history of the church. You can go to the extreme on the other side too, and now we don't even talk about this, this intimate relationship that we have with this loving Father, but we, we see Him and we relate to Him only as this judge, only as a disciplinary. But the two should not be torn apart. They should be brought together and kept together. He is our loving Father who lovingly corrects us and disciplines his children. But his discipline, like any discipline, can be very unpleasant. Painful even. Frightening. Another writer says this, we must not expect God to overlook the sin in our own lives, for while its penalty has been paid at Calvary, that is true, God is at work to purify us for, to His glory, right? We've talked about this many times. What did God save us for? Just so that we don't have to go to hell? Certainly, that is a wonderful and glorious part of it. But He has saved us. He has redeemed us that we might be pure, holy, living righteous lives. Another writer says this, membership in God's family Great privilege, though it is, must not lead to presumption that disobedience will pass unnoticed or undisciplined. You get the, the drift here? The idea? There, there should not be a casualness. Yes, He is my Father. Yes, He loves me. Yes, I am His beloved. Yes, he chose me. Yes, he rescued me. Yes, he cares for me. He pours out his mercy on me. Yes, yes. But that does that mean it doesn't matter how I live or I don't need to be paying attention to how I live or even being careful, truly careful about how I conduct myself? Is it in line with your will, Father? Is this what you desire? Is this thought, is this feeling, is this action pleasing to you? Sadly, sadly, beloved, my experience has been the church is way too casual about these things. I mean, my own life, I've seen it from time to time. And I'm convicted by these texts. Way too casual about sin. Oh, I'm forgiven. Yes, you are. But God doesn't want you doing that any longer. Listen, concerning God's discipline, here it is, Hebrews 12, 6 through 11, familiar passage. Remember what it says there, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. You see the, the combo here? He disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. I mean, what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which 
all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, if you're truly a child of God, you'll experience discipline. You can expect it. That's what your father does, if he is your father. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. But for the moment, all discipline seems painful. Right? That's not good. That's uncomfortable. That's, right? Rather than pleasant. Okay? That's what discipline brings. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You know, I mentioned to you that God's discipline can include up to death of the child of God, discipline of his children. But I'm not making that up. That's, uh, we see that in the Word of God. So, for instance, in 1 Corinthians, another familiar passage, but you need to consider it even in light of what we're seeing now here in 1 Peter. There it says in chapter eleven twenty nine. For anyone who eats and drinks, so he's talking about, and we're not going to get into the whole thing, but they are, they are not approaching the Lord's Supper rightly. They're mistreating the body of Christ as they gather together, okay? So that's what he's referring to. That's the context. Some, some inappropriate behavior, selfishness, lack of love in taking of the communion meal, So he says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why, this is what the Apostle Paul says, many of you are weak and ill and some have died. That is why. Because of your sin towards the body and towards God in the way that you are handling yourselves in these matters because of your unholiness in this area of your life. But if we, if we judged ourselves truly, different word there, examined basically, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And see, listen, I thought a lot about this, obviously, as you know, looking at the passage this week and such, uh, what's happened? Well, because people, we're, we tend to go to extremes, which is never a good place to be, right? So here, this passage, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So th- then the church says, every time someone's weak or ill or they die, it must be because they're on, there's some unholiness or there's some sin in their life, okay? Don't do that. Don't do, see, and so, be, and so in reaction to that, I think people pull so far back away from that, that then... We never, it's never a possibility? No, it is a possibility. I think it would be better for us if these kind of things are being experienced in our life, assuming we're not already dead, sickness, illness, bad stuff, to maybe do some self-examination and ask God, is this your discipline? Are you bringing discipline in my life? That is healthy, beloved. Not in a morbid way where 
That's all you can focus on. You go, I don't know where I'm sinning, and I just can't find it. And obviously, I can get out of this sickness or illness if I'll just repent. That may not be the case. Sickness and illness is part of our human experience. We live in a fallen world, you see? There needs to be a balance. But there certainly is nothing wrong with saying, God, let me just stop and pause and do some self-examination. In fact, I would say that's good to do all the time. Always living fearfully while we sojourn through this life. Considerate of our lives, how we're living before God. I mean, I wouldn't say it's just weakness and illness. It can be other uh, things that come into our lives, and it seems like, like I say, the church just goes from one extreme to the other. Over here, anything bad in your life, like a Job approach, right? You remember Job? Well, these bad things are happening to you, Job. You must have been unrighteous. That's, you can't always say that. But over here... Sometimes that is exactly the case. So maintain balance. In fact, I would say it's probably just better for us to stop looking at other people's lives and trying to evaluate them and figure out and tell them exactly what's happening since we don't really know. But for them, in communion with God and sensitive to the spirit that dwells in them, asking God, what's going on? And is there a place I need to repent? And you may not even have to ask. You may know right away. But you're ignoring it. And because you've been told, oh, don't worry about that sickness or illness, that has nothing to do with anything, don't let anybody tell you that, you don't even consider that to be possibly the discipline of God, and it very well may be. You with me? You know, you have the, uh, besides that, you have, obviously, early on in the church, right? Early on. So remember, um, infant stage of the church, the church has been established, Pentecost. And so you read in Acts, you know, that whole story about Ananias and Sapphira. Do you remember them? And it's debated on, people go back and forth about, they ask the question, was, was Ananias and Sapphira really saved? I don't, they certainly could have been. I mean, it's not like Christians don't ever lie. They could lie. Um, so I don't know. But I would say, I, I would tend to think they probably were. They, they, you know, they, they said, they made a promise, uh, probably to the Lord, that they were going to give all of this money after they sold their property to the church, which was what everyone else was doing. You remember? And, and then they, they pretended, they said that that is what they were doing, and yet they held back some for themselves. And by the way, it's, they had the right to do what they wanted with their property and with the money. There was no demand that they had to give it all. It was, what, what they did wrong was that they hypocritically pretended to be doing something that they weren't. Look at we're giving all, but secretly they held back some. Now, uh, last time I checked, lying, you know, you go back to the Old Testament law, lying did not bring about death. So you'd think, wow, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't expect God to kill them for such a thing. Uh, that's what he did. He killed them. Okay, so yeah, I'll just remind you of the text, just so you can see. And I, and I want you to see what happened when that took place to the church. Verse 4 of Acts 5, it says this, While it remained unsold, Peter's talking to him, did it, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? This deed in your heart, 
You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. He died. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. What came upon all who heard of it? Fear. Fear. Like, oh my goodness. God just killed him. Okay? And then you know the story. His wife comes in a little bit later because she wasn't, uh, she didn't get the word from anybody that don't come in here and lie because God's killing people for it. And, um, and so in verse 9, Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Because she comes in and gives the same uh, lie. And behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. So she just gets that news. And they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet, breathed her last. She died. When the young men came in, they found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Great fear. Uh, commenting on that passage, one, one writer just points out, you know, he says this, that God's reasons for bringing about the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira involve his abhorrence of sin, the hypocrisy of the couple, and the lesson for the rest of the church, both then and now. It can be easy today to gloss over the holiness of God, to forget that he is righteous and pure and that he hates sin wholeheartedly. I would just add, and he hates it, if possible, even more so in his redeemed children. The story of Ananias and Sapphira goes on to say, as a reminder to us today that God sees the heart, right? He saw what, he already knew what they had done, that he hates sin and that he is concerned for the purity of his church. So, we see this special act of God's discipline likely happening early in the church because he wanted it to, to be set off on the right course. Fear me. Live before me in fear. I am not messing around. I love you. I saved you. I redeemed you that you might be holy. You best do that. Or I will bring my discipline into your life, church. So 2,000 years removed, the churches, you know, they've wandered all over the place from this fear of God. Even some suggesting we shouldn't fear God. That it's not, uh, it doesn't cooperate with love. That's not biblical. In fact, you see later on in Acts, this is what it says in chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had, had peace and was being built up and... Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. What were they doing? Walking in the fear of the Lord. Because they had been taught not only by the Old Testament Scriptures, but by now by the example certainly of Ananias and Sapphira to fear God and walk in that fear as they lived before Him. And it was in that fear and the comfort of the Spirit that it actually grew and multiplied. Now, that brings us to 1 Peter one seventeen, And if you call on him, as it says, as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So, 
This is, this is it. So based, based on the fact that your heavenly Father impartially judges each one's deeds, there's no free pass here. Yes, you're his beloved child. Yes, you are redeemed, but he doesn't look the other way because of that. Because of that, because he's an impartial judge, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile or, or the time of your temporary residence or stay on this earth, okay? And it's interesting because in the original, you can't see this, in the original language, you don't see it in your English translations because they're, they move words around for readability purposes sometimes, often. Not always, that's not. They move them around to help, help it be more readable to the English mind and reader, okay? But in the original Right after he says, according to each one's deeds, okay, in fear. This is how it reads. In fear or with fear throughout the time of your exile, conduct yourselves. That's the original. That's the order of the words. And so we say that's emphatic. It's being placed at the beginning for emphasis, So it really reads like this. Let me do it again. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds with fear throughout the time of your exile, conduct yourselves. You see? That's the emphasis. And again, I agree that, uh, or as I've said before, already hinted at, I think the fear here is not some a weird fear like, um, like God's a monster, that kind of fear. But it is certainly in this context a fear of, of God, His power, and specifically His discipline when we get out of line or walk in a way that is not according to His Word. One writer says this, Fear in this context means primarily fear of God's discipline. Now, the translation, reverent fear, that's how the NIV translates this passage, is too comfortable for modern readers, for it suggests mainly the idea of awe during worship and allows readers to avoid the concept, fear of discipline. And I agree. And so some have translated this reverence or reverent fear as the NIV has, And certainly a fear of God, a healthy fear of God, includes reverence for God and awe of God, okay? But it is not just that, not here, certainly in this context. That is not what Peter's talking about. He's he's talking about a real terror, a real fear of the discipline of the Father. Just as I mentioned, as I watch my grandkids freeze, right? Right? When that one that they play with and love says, uh-oh, they freeze. You can see there's fear, little fear running through their veins. There's a terror. Not because they think their dad's going to, you know, abuse them, but that they're going to experience something that is very unpleasant and uncomfortable in a moment, possibly. On top of that, think about this. Uh, my son-in-law can't see into his son's hearts. 
So all they have to do is just think, okay, did we do anything externally? But think about the greater level of fear that should exist among Christians because God sees it all. There's nothing hidden from him. You might be sinning in private, but it's not private before God. Just you think about the world, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Think, no, think about that, though. Think, you know, how many times have you probably heard that in your life? If you've never heard, I'm sorry that you just heard it here for the first time, but, <laughs> but it's, that, it's those, that kind of thinking, it kind of starts to go into our mind, and, and you, can, you can find yourself being persuaded by such things. So if something's done in private or away from everyone else, but that is not the case with God. So listen, this is, this is fear of his discipline. This is not fear of God's eternal condemnation or wrath for our sin. Wrath, his holy wrath against our sin. Okay? It's not that. We, we, we don't have that kind of fear. The unbeliever should have that fear of God. They should, and they don't fear God concerning those things, right? Because they're, they're lost in their darkness and in their sin. They should If they did, then they should flee from the wrath that is to come. Flee to that cleft in the rock, as we we sang about earlier. Now, this is not that kind of fear for the believer. I don't fear that I'm going to be cast off into hell. Why? Because of Christ. Because of my faith in him. Because of what he accomplished on my behalf. But it is an an understanding, rather, who God is, that he is an all-knowing, holy, impartial judge, who will not look the other way when it comes to our sin. And because of that, then, we should certainly fear His discipline and therefore carefully seek to avoid it by striving now to live holy lives as He has commanded us to do. You know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know why God doesn't, you know, just um, do a whole Ananias and Sapphira thing. But maybe he does that. We're just not paying attention. Or maybe we're not aware of it. We don't have, we don't know, right? But I just thought about that definitely was helpful to the church. It was helpful to the church. And, and I'm not sure if it's because God is gracious, he is merciful, he is patient. And sometimes he, he waits, he ge- often he waits, he gives us time to repent before he brings the hammer Instead of seeing that as his mercy, we take that to mean it doesn't matter what I do. It does matter what you do. And let me recount to you, if I, if I had the time, how many people's lives, I believe, are, have been under the discipline of God and ruined to one degree or another because they were so carefree when it came to the area of holiness. And because the church doesn't say anything about that, hey, you might consider you're under the discipline. You need to think through these things biblically. No, God's just love, meaning that you can do whatever you want. They, they never stop to examine their lives. Or even God's call to holiness. Don't hear that much anymore either in many church places. And yet that is exactly what God has called us to. 
So Christians should conduct themselves with fear in this present life and be holy. Especially so in light of the passages that are about to follow that, which is 18 and 19. Now take a look at that. Okay? So conduct yourselves in fear. In fear. Live your life in this present temporary world. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from your feudal ways, the feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Clearly, this is an allusion to the requirement of Old Testament sacrifices to, to not have a blemish or spot, to be, to be perfect without any problems if they were to be brought to God. Certainly, Christ was the perfect, the most perfect sacrifice, the lamb without blemish or spot. But what is Peter getting at here? Okay, well, remember, remember the tone, remember the context. God God has ransomed you, Christian. That's, re- remember these things. Think on these things as you're, you're conducting yourselves in fear in this present life. God has ransomed you from your feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. The ways of the, what were the ways of the forefathers? As he speaks to these Gentile Christians, what were their ways? They were idolaters. They were truth suppressors. They were God rejectors. Romans 1. Those were their ways. They were, they were sinners living in rebellion against God, and God has ransomed you. So in other words, he paid a price, that's what it means, ransom, or a ransom to rescue or deliver you from an empty and worthless life, from that life, from a life enslaved to sin, from a life of foolish rebellion against the one and only true God. From an unprofitable and empty life. That is what God has ransomed you from, Christian. And this deliverance, this rescue was not purchased with gold or silver. Pretty valuable things here on earth, right? But as Chris said today, in the economy of God, and Peter just keeps coming back to this, perishable, just asphalt. But rather with something, this rescue, this ransom, it was purchased with something of even much greater value than silver or gold, with something of infinitely inherent value. And and that was with the blood or sacrificial death of God's beloved and precious son, his morally and spiritually perfect son. In other words, God paid an unfathomable, incomprehensible price to rescue you, me, from our futile, sinful way of life. And we need to remember that. So what I believe Peter is implying is this, okay? Keep it in context. In light of the great cost that was paid, God would be most displeased if his ransomed children do not take very seriously God's reason for rescuing them. 
That is that they might be separated from sin and devoted to him. So because you know these things, you must absolutely avoid being flippant about sin, but rather fear and be holy in all you do. God takes your holiness incredibly seriously. How do you know? Consider the cost that he paid for it. Do you take it seriously? He took it seriously. He takes it seriously. It meant so much to him that he gave up his precious son, his his perfect, holy son. One person says, So precious in God's sight is this death and the blood which represents it, that it should never be lightly esteemed by us. Beloved, how might you lightly esteem it? Let me tell you, by being dismissive about your sin. That is how you lightly esteem it. That is how you do not give it the value that it is due. By not conducting ourselves in fear during our time on this earth, that is how you lightly esteem the great cost that God paid to ransom you from your futile ways. One writer puts it this way, holy living is motivated by a God-fearing faith which does not take lightly what was purchased at so great a cost. That's holy living. This last section, verses 20 through 21, he says a lot here, but I, I think his point is, um, well, let me read it, and then I'll, I'll explain it, because you can try to figure out how is this connected with everything he's saying, and I, I think it's like this, but let me read it first. So then he says in verse 20, he, that is our Redeemer, this Jesus, this precious Son, he was foreknown, it was predetermined by God, the Father, before the foundation of the world, that he would be our Savior. But he was made manifest, he was revealed in the last times, which is the times we live in now, for the sake of you, Christian, who through him, are believers in God. Another way you could translate that is through him you now trust in God, through this Redeemer, through this precious Son, who, God, raised him from the dead and gave him glory. He's talking about his resurrection, his ascension. So that your faith and hope are in God. Okay, that's interesting. I was trying to just... There's a lot there, and it's all beautiful and wonderful, and, um, but what's the connection? Well, the end of this verse, so that your faith and hope are in God, that, that really is the conclusion here of, of this, these two verses, and it's uh, really the main point of the verses. So, so it goes something like this. I was uh, looking up one commentator, and I thought, I thought he nailed it. So here you have in 14 through 16, he tells his readers, Peter does, to live holy lives, right? And then in verse 17, he says, now, in light of that, in connection with that, fear God's discipline, okay? 
because, think of this, God redeemed you from sin at a great cost, verses 18 through 19. But here he concludes now by, as you're thinking of those things, by reminding his readers that the one that they are to fear as judge is also the God whom they now trust in as Savior. The one whom they fear as judge is also the God whom they trust in as Savior. Because consider what he says here. Basically, God planned your redemption from all eternity. He planned it here. He, he says, this one, the Savior, the one who redeemed you, the Son, God foreknew him. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So he planned their redemption. Then he sends forth his Son, right? For who? For their sake. He sent him forth for you to, to save you. He And he is the one in whom they now believe God, depend on, they trust in. And God is the one who raised Christ from the dead. God the Father raised him from the dead and glorified him. And and because of that, he is the one now that Christians put their hope in, trust in. Hope and trust in. So as the one person says, the God whom Christians fear is also the God whom they trust forever. The God who has planned and done for them only good from all eternity. And I think it just gives a nice wrapped perspective. Yeah, your father, the one whom you fear, is the same one who has planned your redemption, rescued you, saved you. He's done good for you from all eternity. So live in light of that as you fear him as well. Beloved, we'll, uh, we're going to end there. We're going to end there for today. We'll come back to 1 Peter, but I, I hope you'll, you'll, you'll consider these things seriously. I hope this is, this is the kind of things you can do in light of a passage like this, which is examine your life. Examine it. I was thinking about this myself. I was thinking about one of, one of the ways to see if you've gotten, there are many ways, but one of the ways to see if, if you are really living in the fear of the Lord and, and pursuing holiness is to consider what you laugh at. Okay? It's one way. It's one way that I think gets avoided. People don't think about it. They don't pay attention to it. And so I mean that by stuff on television, right? It comes on. And if you find yourself laughing at something that uh, is vile, disgusting, wicked, according to God's word, that God hates, that God does not like, if you find yourself finding humor in those things, you are not living in the fear of the Lord. I'm just trying to help you through as you process. You're not living, at that moment, you're not living in the fear of the Lord. You're not, you're not really taking seriously how he thinks about those things, how he feels about those things, how he doesn't want those kind of things to be a part of your life. He certainly doesn't want you finding humor in those types of things. One example. Uh, But take stock of your life. Begin to look at your life. What what am I pleasing myself with? What What am I doing? What am I pursuing? And are any of those things that that would be something that God would be displeased in. He loves me, yes. He's not going to love me any less. 
But he is displeased with sin in our lives. This is why he brings discipline. He doesn't want it in your life. And if you're wise, you should not want it in your life either. Because if you continue in it as a child of God, he will bring his discipline. Maybe not now, maybe not tomorrow. Because he is patient, he is gracious, he is merciful, he doesn't drop the hammer immediately, but he'll bring it. You don't want it. I mean, you do, you do. So in a sense, you do want it because it's corrective, right? It trains you to get away from that, to run away from that. But it would be better to just walk in holiness and not experience it. And beloved, there's no doubt we're going we're gonna to have discipline because we're imperfect children. But to be flippant about it, to not even have it on your radar, that's a whole other story. And let me speak to you who are not children of God. You know, I think, too, there's, this, uh, we, there's some confusion because you see people living in all kinds of sin, right? Openly, blatantly. Well, what did we read earlier? That if you are without discipline, you are not a legitimate child of God. Think about this for a second, right? So we see these people living in sin, open sin, open rebellion. We think, see, nothing's happening to them. Yeah, nothing's happening right now, but those aren't children of God. Their judgment's coming. Eventually, God will deal with them, but these are not his children. If they were his children, he would bring discipline into their life. That's what Hebrews teaches. But we get confused and just think, well, God obviously doesn't care. He certainly cares, but... These people may not be his children, so don't get confused. God does care. He cares very much about the holiness of his kids. For those who are sons of the devil, the devil allows them to freely live in their dirt as they create chaos for their own life and chaos for others. And so he he may let them continue in that mess because they're his kids. Finally, if you're here and you're not a child of God, you should fear that wrath that is coming, that the wrath that we read about this morning, the, the holy judgment of God against sin. You should fear that, and that fear should lead to you fleeing to the cross of Jesus Christ where you will find refuge. Forgiveness of your sins, justification before God, the credit of Christ's righteousness to your account, because you have none, we have none, and new life in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit that now frees you from sin and enables you to live the life that God desires His children to live. I pray you would think on those things seriously. Our culture is missing fear, the fear of God, in a very bad way, and it's showing up everywhere. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray you work in our hearts and our minds. Father, help us to desire, truly desire to be a holy church. Help us to think rightly about sin. Yes, Father, 
May we take seriously even these words uh, to live in fear. As your children, we don't, we don't fear your eternal wrath. No, we don't. And we're so grateful for that. But that doesn't mean we now get a free pass when it comes to sin. And Father, we, we've allowed our thinking to become muddled, I think, often in these, this area, specifically messed up, confused. Father, write our thinking even now through your Spirit and your Word this morning as we considered it. Help us to think rightly about these things and help us to respond appropriately as we should. Father, I pray even now that you would work in our hearts and minds to convict us of areas in our life where clearly we aren't, we are flippant, we are careless, we are not cautious, and we're even indulging to one degree or another in sin of some sort and not pursuing holiness in all that we do, at least in those areas. Father, even now, even now, convict us. May we turn from it. May we repent. May we pursue holiness as we live in fear, as we continue our sojourn through this temporary earth. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.